Welcome uh, to DadBot History. Uh, this is going to be our first uh, DadBot History book club book episode. Club. So you may have heard some really classy music in the intro. Just really classed yeah. the whole thing up. And then I've you got saw our tea. mugs and it all went. You brought tea. I have a, a drink I had the other night watching one of the games. Uh, so I went and bought a bottle of uh, Gdansk Viking blood. It's mead. What? I mean, it all sounds lovely. Jack's had it. Yeah, it's had good. It. It dance Viking blood. Can we can we talk about that for a sec? What, Hold on. What yeah, is just, that? Well, there's more editing. All right. Just God, cut for the. Oh, that was close. Oh, nice. What is that? It's, uh, I can't. It's mead. Dance Viking with blood. hibiscus sure and hops. Oh, that's mead good. is made from honey, correct? Yeah, it's 19 percent alcohol by volume. It's good. All right. So, so I had uh, some while watching one of the games the other night, Cameron and I went out to a, a bar and had dinner and drinks while watching one of the uh, Western Conference Finals games. <clears throat> and we ordered a glass of this and it was really yummy. So uh, we do not have Total Wine and More in Bakersfield, but we do it in, do in Tempe. So I went and grabbed some and that's that you don't have a stuff. you don't have a superstore of booze in Bakersfield? We have a Bevmo and a Bevmo is like oh not a superstore. Sure it it's is a store. No, it it's seems, not, not compared to things pretty super. They have two aisles of vodka. How is that not a superstore? Because they don't have specialty items, I guess. They don't the have thing. Viking blood, mm-hmm. Jeff. Right. That's they why. don't have meat. Exactly. They have, Thank you, Jake, for cutting to the chase <laughs> yeah. on that. <laughs> yeah, that's they have why. two brands of meat, both of which are <laughs> subpar. So which is a good thing, actually. You want to be Wait. subpar. Oh, yeah. Meat? That's good. Fair. Well, in golf, which is <clears throat> par. No, that makes sense. Sorry. Super Jeff's par. On, Jack's on, uh, <laughs> on point there. Well, par right. is the mark. So Bevmo is under the mark. In this case, it's a negative. All right. I think we're lost in some semantics here. No, so, he's got Viking blood. He's uh, lost. I, so it's book club night. So we're going to talk about a book. And uh, before we do that, I'm going to ask Jack some questions. Uh, Jack's been with us a few episodes, and he is in the Navy, so I want to ask him some stuff about that. Uh, but before we get started with that, Jake, you have some dad front stories. I mean, it's not much of a story. It, oh, well, it's just glad we're spending time on it. <laughs> well, I think it's. I'm sure I'm not it's, the only. It sounds one. important. It's just my daughter. So I was sitting down watching the Bucks play tonight, and she comes up to me and she hands me some money. Uh, on my end table and it's like buttons and sticks she goes here's your <laughs> like okay and she goes so what do you want to order from my restaurant and they go well i would like some nachos she goes okay that will be 50 dollars, please some and i just nachos. go what yeah like clearly my daughter has no concept on what you nachos know what Michelin stars, stars wait, wait, are wait, or, I, or I, the I price clear, of a nacho. Yeah, clearly you have no concept of the exchange rate of sticks and buttons, maybe, no, is the yeah. other thing. But she she hit me with hard American currency. She says $50. She didn't say two sticks and a button. She said 50 US dollars. And, and then she made my nachos, which is an assembly of cardboard boxes and glitter. I mean, <laughs> so it's just... I'm I failed as a fought. It was delicious. I mean, it actually worked. It it really tied well. But in my in my mind, you were going to get actual nachos. I'm a little sad for you now. Yeah, no, I paid. I gave her all my sticks and buttons for some 
some cardboard box nachos and glitter. Because if I dig back into antiquity, when I would give my children sticks and buttons for nachos and they would bring me cardboard and glitter, they would then stand there to wait and see what I did. Like, he's got to eat some. Yeah, exactly. Eat oh, some, no, Dad. She did. She made me put it in my mouth. And how was it? Oh, mm, delicious, sweetie. Love it. Can't you just do like the thing where you like <laughs> put it behind you or whatever? No, the jig is up, man. She's, they see. She's on to my game. Oh, yeah. no. <laughs> my, son is, my son Swallow is still that. young. Yeah, there's more food, on your plate. But Finish the plate. I'm just teaching yeah. how to actually make nachos. No, <laughs> I, I, so nachos. I, well, that's the point. Is I, it's clearly a failure as a father because she has no clearly. concept of how money works or nachos. And it's it's a teaching moment. Me. A teaching moment yeah. presented itself in so a very unique there, way. There will be some work work on that in the next week or so. Don't worry, my father still manages all my funds. So. <laughs> That's I awesome. have no idea what's going on. Yeah. It's only half true, but yeah. <laughs> but to, to all the viewers, it's it's not completely true. I, I did teach them stuff, right, Jack? Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, that's my story. Uh, fun little anecdote from tonight. So speaking about from the, the dad front, I guess I'll give a little background here. For those who don't know, Jack is my son and is also a former student of eric and jake so, so he's like the three of us had a child together three that's men exactly and that's exactly where i was going with that eric yeah because it's 2021 and everything goes so it was ted dancing it so. was it was the last cool. time we really saw a quality steve gutenberg product <laughs> it really before was before we really take off i'm just gonna grab some root beer real quick and it was also it was the end of the first arc of John Travolta's career. Wasn't he the baby's voice? I thought he was in Look Who's Talking. Well, I know he was in Look Who's Talking. Was he the baby for Three Men and a Baby? I'm gonna look oh, it up. Look Who's Talking. No, you're right. It was Look Who's Talking. I thought those were the same movie, but they were two different masterpieces of cinema. Yeah. Um, but that was different. that was kind of the end of him. And then Tarantino found him in the in the 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 dollar bin and brought him back in Pulp Fiction. Yeah. Yeah. Because before uh, that, I think there was like a, a gap between three men and a baby or look who's talking in Pulp Fiction where like the only part he could get in Hollywood was literally like he was a pizza delivery guy and he, they opened the door, took the pizza and then shut the door. And no that lines. was his scene in the movie. No lines. Yeah. Wow. It was like he, he was probably made more money delivering an actual pizza one time yeah. than they paid him for that. I, I mean, he yeah. must've been doing it just to keep his SAG card active because I mean, you, you were right before Tarantino picked him back up. He was dead man walking. He was done. All right. Anyhow, so that gets us up to speed. Um, Eric, I believe you had uh, some stuff in mind. You wanted to go over with Jack? Yeah. Or, I, uh, uh, so Jack Peterson has been with us for a few episodes um, and Jack is, a member of the United States Navy. What is the official term for a member? Is it a sailor or a seaman? Well, it depends on your rank, but um, as far as generalities go, I'd be a sailor. A seaman is one of the lower ranks. So E1 oh, to E3. Oh, seaman is an actual rank. Okay. Seaman recruit, seaman apprentice, and then seaman. So the equivalent to soldier or marine would be sailor. Sailor. Okay. Okay. So Jack is in the Navy. I Obviously, any questions I ask that you're like, yeah, that's classified, I guess... It's going to be they most just of tell them. us nobody's going to he hear this. So <laughs> it's as good as classified on here. This entire um, podcast is top secret. <laughs> they warned me about you. So Sack uh, Jeff is watching us right now. He is not happy. That's, that's fine. Someone knocks yeah. on my door. It's the podcast that killed Rumsfeld. 
So what do you do in the Navy? I'm a sonar technician on a submarine. Duh. And, and what is that like? What's it like? It's like an office job, except <laughs> you're underwater off of coast of country X and it's not interesting. And you're bored out of your mind just trying to stay awake. Most of the time, it's not interesting. Let's, I was going to say, there, there's got to be moments of There are excitement. some cool things that I've seen. Absolutely. And can you tell you us can about share? any of those? Yeah. So I was, we were surfaced and we were transiting across this uh, shallow area. So we had to be surfaced. And we were getting escorted by a couple of destroyers. And um, once you're surfaced, uh, sonar doesn't really play a role because your rays are out of the water. But um, so for this one, like I had a lot of time on my hands. I didn't have a station. So I was able to just kind of hang out and watch. And uh, we're passing really close to a country that we're not a fan of. Right. And out of nowhere, Canada, like a hundred, a hundred tiny little boats just start coming dead at us. And I was like, oh, my God, what is going on? Like, this is bad. Right. This is pretty bad. And the captain's like, no, nah, we're fine. Keep going. I was, like, I was looking at everybody and they're like, wow, we've never seen this before. This is crazy. But the captain, the captain, completely cool about it, did not care. So I was like, okay, if he doesn't care, I don't care. We've got escorts. We'll be okay. These hundred boats like pass right next to us. But uh, as they're passing, they're just waving at us and they just keep going towards the other country that's on the other side of the water. And the captain reveals like, yeah, these guys, they're not hostiles. These are actually smugglers and they're going to get as close to us as they can because the, the other Navy, the hostile Navy is not allowed to come near us. So they just use us because we're not going to do anything. And we don't care. And the other Navy can't stop these smugglers from crossing because they're going so close to us and they're just happy to see us. So, so as soon, as, as, soon as these guys see you, they know, Hey, there, there it is. Let's yeah, go. They all come out of the woodwork. Like it's time okay. to go. We can take our stuff. So I want to, who do you think those two countries are, Jake? Well, clearly the the tensions between France and England have escalated <laughs> since last I heard. It's clearly a bunch of French gondolas crossing the channel, based on what I understood from it. Probably America and Cuba. Crazy Probably croissants. I'm going China and Taiwan. Yeah. That's just me. So, and obviously, Jack's not going to give us signals right now if that's correct or not. My other great question guesses. is this, huh? Said great guesses. <laughs> uh, boot camp for the Navy. Is that like army boot camp, but like on a boat or in the water? No, we're not because, in the water. Because every, every show I've seen on like boot camps, it's all on like the Marines or the army. I have no idea what the Air Force or the, the Navy does for their training. The Air Force is nonsense. They get to keep their cell phones and stuff. Don't. Their boot camp's a joke, and we all hate them. Is that why you call them the chair force? Yes, absolutely. But uh, Navy boot camp, I think it's uh, pretty much what you'd expect out of a boot camp. We were marching around all day long, practicing movements. You know, we're learning a little bit about the Navy at the same time, but it's mostly just to knock the nonsense out of people and form some discipline and ethic. And they do have a Navy-themed uh, courses that we do. Like, they've got a boat set up it's not in the water but it's the shape of a boat and we practice line handling and setting up lines and then at the very end of boot camp we go to a thing called battle stations and they have this mock like destroyer set up and they just simulate casualties and problems and 
how to navigate the boat and just dealing with different scenarios. And once you get through battle stations, you're considered an actual sailor. And then you go on to your advanced training. Your individual training. And so did you go in thinking I'm doing sonar technician? Oh yeah. Day one, I wanted to be a sonar technician on a submarine. Like day one at boot camp or when you went and signed the papers? Well, when I went in to enlist in the Navy, I was pretty sure that I wasn't going to enlist in the Navy. So it wasn't quite then. It's like walking into an Apple store. They talk you into buying something, right? Yeah, you got me good, man. He's good at his job. <laughs> but once I did finally get to pick a job, he's like, do your top three jobs that you want. And the top one, I was like, I want to be a sonar technician on a submarine. And he was baffled because nobody wants to go on a submarine. He's like, okay, yeah, that, that won't be a problem. Like I get a bonus for that. Just so you know, like that's, I just made commission. Jack, am I correct that everybody on a submarine has volunteered to be on a submarine? Yeah. You have to be a volunteer. Why is that? Well, if you have someone that doesn't want to be there in such a high stress environment where everything is very dangerous and it's, it's a completely different atmosphere. They're going to go crazy. They can just claim to have a, claustrophobia and they're they're out of there it's probably not the best place for claustrophobia it's probably the worst place now what is the uh headspace in a sub you uh, too tall to be on a submarine are you yeah i'm six one if, if cameron wanted to be on a sub what would they go eh, better not no they'll take any size really uh the boat that i'm on is a aegean and it's pretty big so it's actually quite spacious in most areas. My dad's actually been on it. It's a, what'd you say, call it? So the designator for the first letters is SS. So that's submarine service and then GN. So that's a guided missile nuclear boat. And those are big boats. SSGNs and SSBNs are big boats. And then the SSNs are the fast attacks. And those are small and more like your traditional submarine. So you don't have to like when you're walking from place to place on the sub, you don't have to duck a lot. Like it's gotten enough head headspace for you. Yeah. Yeah. You can stand okay. up straight. Uh, we've got a lot of extra stuff. Like we have a whole middle compartment that the fast attacks don't have. And so when you talk to a fast attack guy, you'll tell him a story like, yeah, I was sitting in cruise lounge, you know, doing this when this happened. And they're like, you guys have a lounge. That's amazing. We don't even have our own racks. Like they share their racks with two other people sometimes. Because they're on like eight hour rotations. Mm -hmm. My gosh. I can't imagine I've, that. I, I don't know if you've been on the uh, USS Bowfin that's parked in Pearl Harbor. It's a World War II era sub. It's just, I can't, and, and those ones are tiny. I cannot imagine being on a submarine. And I think psychologically, I would probably panic after two days underwater. Just thinking they about talk it talk about much. the psychology of uh, German sailors on U-boots and, uh, Basically, it was like the worst conditions you could operate in, but their morale was high because like they were getting stuff done and they they loved it. They felt like they were making a difference. They were going out there, they were seeking stuff. And that's why they were able to keep going, allegedly. So you're saying you'd do better if you were able to just go sink stuff? Oh, absolutely. Why? Isn't that what you actually want? That would guess. make me happy. <laughs> so you enjoyed the film Dust Boot, I assume? Excellent movie. Yeah. All right. uh, Jack, uh, you and I went, I believe, on the Scorpion in Long Beach, but mm -hmm. wasn't that a Russian boat? 
That was a Russian boat, yeah. Okay, that was a Russian World War II boat. Yeah, but still probably along the lines of what you're talking about, Eric. I mean, super cramped. Like like Jack mentioned, I, I have had the opportunity to be on his boat. And um, I don't know if I'd use the word spacious, but compared to those World War II boats, it is a significant difference. And I assume a bit cleaner. They're not burning diesel and and you know, messy as everything else, but. Well, that's a fun fact. What do you guys think a, uh, and I already know the answer, but what do you guys think submarines smell like Eric and Jake? Oh, Oil. it's gotta be college dude. <laughs> <laughs> smells like bro. Yeah. It smell like bro or okay. Axe body spray. No. <laughs> well, Clorox or oil. I don't know. Take it away to dead. Crayons. It smells like crayons. Yeah. Out there. It really <laughs> does smell like crayons. Yeah, Is that you how you guys pass the time? It's the aiming. And no, it's not. <laughs> we passed the time. Cut <laughs> coloring. Wrong branch. Is there a reason it smells like crayons? Like, or did it just, that's that new sub smell? Like, it's I don't. Aiming that's on the boat. We use aiming. What is that? I don't. It's found in crayons too. So that's what makes it smell like is that a, <laughs> Is that a cleaning product? What is that? Uh, I'm actually not 100% sure. It's like an A gang thing. So. Okay. A gang is all the guys down in the engine room, the wrench mashers. Okay. That's awesome. I would never have guessed crayons. Hey, hey Jack, I'm curious. What is the uh, one thing that is on your submarine that surprised you the most? One thing on my sub that surprised me the most. Uh, that's a good question. Uh, I don't really know. Uh, it was all just new to me. I don't know what I was expecting, really. I mean, I know what I didn't like, so I was still afraid of heights. By the time I first showed up to a boat and going down the LET, the, the hatches to go onto the boat, it's still very scary. But not anymore. It's, it's very normal now. Now I'll just slide down and hope that I break something. <laughs> and so how long are you out on the boat? <clears throat> What's your tour like? Four to six months. And how much of that is actually underwater at a time? I'd say about 90% of it. Is there any reason to come up above water? Uh, for us, yeah, that's how we uh, use our systems. That's what we're doing. Uh, we use the periscope. To, it's easier to maintain a contact picture, like knowing where all boats are around you if you're at periscope depth. But to actually surface, like, uh, no, there's there's no actual reason other than we're pulling in a port. Or you're going through shallows or something. Right. Or they're yeah. escorting smugglers. <clears throat> so, yeah. The yeah. smugglers were escorting them, I thought. Like yeah. to help. Well, that's interesting. I'm, I'm sure I'll have more questions about the Navy. When do you yeah, just, when do you head back out? Not for like three years. I'm on short duty now. So it's just like even more like office work yeah <laughs> i get to go home every day now which is amazing well is, so is your job still sonar tech it's a sonar related but it's not a sonar tech i will be a sonar tech still but the job is not really sonar and what's your current rank i'm an e5 so i'm a second class petty officer so an e5 what is that in army is that like a sergeant or a corporal I think it's a sergeant. Hmm. I'm not sure. I used to know. 
And how much longer are you going to be in the Navy going career? Uh, everybody says no until it's time, but, uh, right now I've got about five more years before I have to make up my mind. And, uh, at my, in five years, I will have been in for 11 years. Then you're halfway there. I know at that point. I know. Five in the army is a sergeant, Eric. All right. So you can call me sergeant if you want. Uh, Never. I can. No. You said petty officer first class. Second. Second class. Ooh, second class. <clears throat> I've never made rank uh, by taking the test to make rank. So how do you make rank other than that? So traditionally, you take this test, and if you uh, if advancement is high, so say uh, advancement is ten percent, if you score in the best ten percent of people, you'll get promoted. But um, the first time. I made rank to become a third class petty officer. Advancement was at hundred percent. So you could have smeared your poop on the paper. You're getting promoted. And then the second time I got meritoriously advanced, they just like, you did a good job. You don't have to take the test. Like just a battlefield a commission. Yeah, it was a battlefield commission. I took out a tanker bug. I threw a grenade after I shot a hole into its back and they just promoted me right <laughs> on the spot. <laughs> That's my boy. It. That is a great segue into our I'm children. surprised we can he can just disclose that. You know, <laughs> he can't tell us what country he might have been by, but he can just tell us how he the bugs blasted the bugs. No, yeah, no, I I know. <laughs> it's a great uh segue to our what book club, Dad Bot History Book Club. Uh we're gonna talk Robert A. Handline, Starship <laughs> Troopers, which is apparently Jack's favorite book, his uh his go-to manual for life. It is. She's not exaggerating either. It's a little so, frightening. It's so as I understand it, if you're watching or listening to this podcast, um, we're talking the actual book, not the film. The film was trash. No, film stop. Was not trash. The film is amazing. It's just that not the book. Would have been the on film. my movie list if I was there. Okay, so not trash. The film is not a correct or proper depiction it's of a, the book. It's a beautiful They're both disaster. taking a very different perspectives on the same content, and that is... The book would appear to me to be very pro everything in the book. And the movie is, we're going to make a farce of it. Well, okay, fun fact. I, as I was doing some research <clears throat> for tonight's talk, I did a little digging. And Paul Verhoeven is the director who did the movie. And he never read the entire book. He was famously so disgusted by the book's fascistic attitudes <laughs> that he hired a whole nother screenwriter to write the script and he deliberately veered away. So I think the original idea was to embrace a lot of the philosophies in the book, but um, he personally disliked them so much that he took it in another direction and took it a little more of a, just a pure sci-fi. Well, and I believe some of the shots were like shot for shot from the triumph of the will Yeah, yeah to contrast it to like, this is horrible. This is a fascistic regime. And this is, how uh, how terrible it would look and obviously making it look bad. Um, Which is funny because he did the movie in a satirical light and I still think it's pretty cool, so. It's a fun movie. Yeah, so it's I misspoke. Really I did not mean trash. Well, I guess I was saying it's even, not Even a, just the spirit of the movie, what he was making fun of, I don't think he did a good job of making fun of it. I mean, anytime you throw Jake Busey in, you're going to have a hard time making your point, so. But, um, well, let's get into it. Let's get into 
Starship Troopers. What do you, who, who wants to start? Do you just want to give a summary of what it is? Um, I, you know, I Here. read this several oh, years ago, but oh. I guess Jake is starting. No, go ahead. Well, nobody else was talking, so I'm just going to keep talking. That's I, uh, how I, live. I started reading it and then I stopped and then I started reading it again. But this time I started uh, by listening to it as well. So I listened and read part of it. <clears throat> and by listening to it, because it's told in the first person, it immediately reminded me of the opening scenes that are narrated from All Quiet on the Western Front. And as I kind of the the description of like, well, here's who's still alive. Here's who our uh, sergeant is. And he takes care of us. It was kind of it had the very same sentiments as All Quiet on the Western Front. However, in stark contrast to that, this is Starship Troopers is in no way an anti-war book. Because all quiet on the Western Front, right off the bat, Eric Marie Remark, uh, Remark says, this is an anti-war book. And that's nowhere to be found in Starship Troopers. But <clears throat> they Did read very similarly. In all quiet on the Western Front? Yeah. I thought I, he almost, specifically said this wasn't meant to be anti-war. Just it wasn't. Be... It was not meant to glorify war. Okay. It, and and I, could, I could be wrong. I'd have to go back and look at the author's note. But but they read and sound so similar in the opening chapter because both books open midway through, right? Uh, All Quiet on the Western Front opens up midway through the main character's tour. Starship Troopers opens up midway through uh, Johnny Rico's tour and then both backtrack to the beginning. So I thought that was really interesting because it just stuck in my mind the whole time that I'm thinking All Quiet on the Western Front throughout this. Mm -hmm. So it's an interesting book. I mean, when you look at the cover and, and I'm thinking back, um, I, I think that my reading of the book was kind of the first domino that led to this. For whatever reason, I read the book um, from there. I gave it to Jake and also gave a copy to my son. And I, I've given this book to many people to read. And and again, I can't think of why I necessarily would have read this book. I mean, I saw the movie. I look at the cover of the book. It looks like some pretty stock science fiction space battle stuff um that even the name is just so generic yeah and, and and that's not my fair you know you look at the covers uh there's very little that leads i i, I may have read something somewhere talking about some of the themes in the book i don't know so there's but, the um, uh there's the cover on the audiobook let's get my light in it i don't know if that's what your your book looks like it's just um, kind you know of what it, it, it's all variations on the theme i mean there there's nothing because I mean, how would you draw a cover to this book that really describes it? Yeah, there you've got yeah, a, and there's uh, mine, a, a bug and a crosshair, and mine. I would hold mine up, but my camera keeps blurring it out. It's just you know, you're some generic spaceships dropping off some Starship troopers. So, but um, it's got some, it's got some really heavy political and moral philosophy in it, um, which is odd because to my recollection, as much as they talk about moral philosophy and and in and, and politics in a way they never talk about the political structure of the society that exists on earth or terra um in this book so you've got johnny rico has joined the military in order to get um citizenship he wants to be a citizen and that's in order to be or to be a citizen can vote and hold office if memory mm -hmm. serves, but it's just odd that they never talk about. Do well, we there a is a minister. Do we have a president? Oh yeah, there is a there is a chapter where they discuss kind of the 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 philosoph philosoph philosophical underpinnings of 
these are the only people who should be citizens because they're the only ones with skin in the game kind of thing. But yeah, as far as the, the structure of how citizens make decisions and laws and who runs the things. Yeah. That's, that's not really laid out. Other because than, as they say, um, something given has no value. Right. And in this case, that would be citizenship. <clears throat> if you just give it to everybody, the worst of the worst are able to vote as well as the best of the best. And it's going to lead to discord and dysfunction and differing views. And that might be a good thing, might be a bad thing, but in this society, is it a good idea that citizenship through service is a thing? Cause this would promote a unified way to think like people that are all in the military typically think the same way. Right. Would we agree with that on a general scale? You would be the expert on that. So the, we'll take the your process of thinking. Yeah. I mean, because I'm sure people in the Navy and in the military have a variety of perspectives, but their process Absolutely. for their process for arriving at them might be similar. Is that what you mean? A little more disciplined, a little more ordered, a little more based on a meritocracy. And so if everybody that was holding office and contributing to the government had all these like-minded ideas, it'd be much easier to journey towards a goal that we all value. I think that's one of the main pros of citizenship through service. Yeah. And uh, on page 118, they're talking about that. And I've got underlined. Um, and this is when uh, the teacher Dubois, he's teaching a moral philosophy class in high school. And he which, says, which to be fair, Jack would say is basically my eighth grade history class, right? Like that's about as that close was, as he ever came to this. That was when I first started getting radicalized. <laughs> It says in here, his quote is, <laughs> if you boys and girls had to sweat for your toys the way a newborn baby has to struggle to live, you would be happier and much richer. As it is with some of you, I pity the poverty of your wealth. That's like Jack is saying, if you don't work for something, then what value does it have for you? I mean, that's a that's arguably my favorite line in the book. I pity the poverty of your wealth. I'd say that that kind of could sum up the past couple of years for a lot of people. Well, and, and uh, you could say that of every generation. Yeah, with a lot of great literature and a lot of great uh, science fiction, even, you know, 1984, it's those books are relevant for a long time. Um, the Atlas Shrugged, Starship Troopers, th these books are old, but they still read very, very well. So, yeah, the, I think I was just going to say, and a lot of what we're going to probably be referencing <clears throat> is. Um, Dubois, Colonel Dubois, who was the teacher. Um, and there's in chapter six and in chapter one, I don't know what the, the chapter six and chapter eight, and there's another chapter where he gives these kind of long, not long winded, but he gives these philosophical rants or, or lectures about the society that they live in. And that's where we get most of our knowledge of obviously how the society is structured and the philosophy behind it. Um, and so Dubois became, he's, he's kind of the underlying or underpinning force in at least the first half of this book um, in, in how Johnny Rico's um, own personal uh, paradigm starts shifting when he joins the service. So what I was going to say, Jack, you mentioned, you know, uh, citizenship through service uh, I think the only thing we really have comparable to that in the world is uh, compulsory service. 
Right. Like yeah, uh, Israel, countries. I know Germany has something similar, although Germany has the option to make that civil service rather than military, but a compulsory. I would agree 100% to that too. I would extend it to military service. I'd extend it to being a civil servant. And I'd even say that if you just volunteered for long enough at something, that would also qualify you. Anything that says that you place society above yourself. Isn't that kind of an anti-American idea? Yeah, we're very individualistic. So how does that jive with America. government can't tell me what to do? Well, it's, it's interesting. I mean, one of the quotes in this book is from Thomas Paine, and it's a very famous one. It says, what we obtain too cheap, we esteem too lightly. It would be strange indeed if so celestial an article as freedom should not be highly rated. Um, it's hard to talk about the history of the United States and not bring up Thomas Paine and his ideals. I agree I with that, but I, I just think we, as a nation, are we the whole our whole thing is we're not like Europe, and we we try to just distinguish ourselves from that. And I think Heinlein in this book tries to, well. He's very clear. He goes, "The reason the North American coalition or whatever it was fell was because <laughs> they were just." giving stuff away and you could just vote for whatever you wanted. And that. So is the book prophetic in that sense? I mean, are we, is the United States operating at its optimal, its most optimal? You can't say it's yes a, to that. Can yeah, you? That's, that's I mean, impossible. And, and was there a time that we did because as we're, as you can point out, you know, at any time through American history, if we've been very uh, efficient at something, we've also been not carrying out the charter of protecting the rights of all its citizens. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, what we, what was a quote, Jeff? Which from one? Thomas Paine? Well, we obtain too cheap, we esteem too lightly. It would be so, strange indeed if so celestial an article as freedom should not be highly rated. So, I mean, that, that freedom being highly esteemed in this nation, the, 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 the other side of the coin is how, how efficient are we? How pragmatic well, are we? Because it, it's highly esteemed, but it's also to Jack's point, it's very easily achieved. I mean, if you're born yeah. in the United States, you have that freedom and you just have it. And, and I think that, that's that's his point. You you what you obtain too cheap um, in his book, in this book, they talk about what you have to do to earn what right. people in America very much take for granted. So I think, you know, Jake's point is that, you know, as much as like Thomas Paine said, you know, you can't just if you give something away for free, it becomes cheap. Well, that's kind of the the problem, problem the the difficulty, the contrast we have with these some of these American ideas, because if individualism and freedom are so highly esteemed, we want everyone to have it freely. Uh, the downside to that is it's very inefficient. It's extremely well, uh, inefficient. What would you guys say was the greatest civilization ever? America. 
Yeah. Anyone else? I, I, I don't know if Eric's being a, a wise I, 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 I would say America. I, I guess it depends on what you consider great. Um, in terms of length, Rome has been a longer civilization. So is China. Uh, Egypt is doing things that nobody else had ever done. Um, so I was hoping you said you're more Rome. That's what I was getting at. But um, <clears throat> I read a book recently, SPQR by Mary Beard. And she's talking about her opinion on when the decline of Rome was really like, when did Rome stop being Rome? And her opinion was it was when this particular Caesar, I can't remember his name, granted everybody that lived in Rome citizenship. And that's when things started going downhill, apparently. I've, I've heard, I haven't read that book, but I've heard that as a cause for Rome is that the legions were more German than they were Roman, um, especially towards the end. Uh, he was granting citizenship, or not he, but they were granting citizenship to um, not just everybody that lived in Rome, but um, lots of newly conquered territories would get um, almost a blank in citizenship as well. Um, so I have heard that posited. I think Rome's failings are go deeper than that. Um, usually you don't make those kind of rash decisions if you don't have a very pressing need to, and you're trying to solve a, a some other more pressing problem and hoping that this kind of kicks the can down the road. But I have heard that before. So yeah, when I your point, Jack, that that what was I, basically everybody got something for free and they no longer valued it. And that was the beginning of the end. Yeah, basically it happened when citizenship was granted freely. And uh, this is clearly like if you don't earn it, you're going to guarantee that people that don't deserve to be a part of your government are going to have a voice in the government. I would counter that with, and as I was, so I've read this when Jeff gave it to me several years ago, I think my daughter had just been born. And so I had a lot of late nights and I had a chance to, to read this book. Um, so I had to kind of reread it um, to get ready for this podcast. And as I was rereading it, the whole, you know, Terran authority or whatever that government is reminds me of Sparta in that only true Spartans or only the true Spartans were the 10,000 warriors and everyone else was less than. And then they had the um, helots who were the slaves that they would routinely declare war on to keep, keep their practice up. But, and then contrasting that you have Athens who is um, more of a citizen soldier type city state. And, you know, the famous scene in 300 is what do you do? Well, I'm a potter, I'm a copper, you know, and, and, and the, Rome, and the Spartans are like, what do you do? And what is your profession? And they all went, Haru. And it was deadly effective, Sparta. But to get to where they were, and Eric, you brought this up to me several years ago, they had to sacrifice all their art and music and culture in the sake of the war machine. And I think that's the danger um, that when you stratify in that sense especially when you in this case make the military the only way to be true citizens um there is a, a a sacrifice that will come from other parts of society to make that happen um because if being an artist isn't valued and you can't vote and can't hold office as an artist 
then what's just because the you can't vote or hold office as an artist doesn't mean you can't live as an artist. You're still in the country and you can still work. You yeah, can be an artist. There, I, I think that's the very point Jake is making is that the artist a, because a I don't know any artists who are in government office right now, uh, but still the artist has no recourse should their art be out loud outlawed. Right. I mean, we see that in China. Certain artists are outlawed and banned because their art isn't like so they don't have recourse in this society if they haven't served and become citizens. They have no recourse. And I think that's kind of the, uh, you know, they, they if you have no way to address grievances with the way things are being run, if you're not a citizen, then what you do may become less valued. And if Possibly, it comes less value, they, then it can go away. And and I'm not, you know, I think that was the, that was kind of the point I made when I brought up Sparta. Sparta was effective at what it chose to do. But it was just one thing that it chose to do. So in a society run like this, what is it going to choose to do and, and make its goal? Because uh, it will be able to achieve its goal. What is that goal going to be? I, I I'm not so certain that I, I i'm not sure i follow um because in the book most people didn't even care about citizenship i don't think that being a citizen was really all that important to most people in the book his father tries to talk him out of it uh, to the best of my knowledge the only things that it granted you is the ability to hold public office and the ability to vote i don't believe you got any other special rights um, most people did not care to be citizens in the book they didn't value the ability to hold public office and the ability to vote, they, they didn't rate it high enough to go through what you had to do to get it. I don't think most Americans value it that much either. Um, and they have it, concur. right? So, um, well, and, but I do want to contend a little bit is that his dad said for, well, when he's talking about Mr. Dubon, he goes, hump, a silly name, it suits him. Foreigner, no doubt. <laughs> it ought to be against the law to use the schools as an undercover recruiting station. I think I'm going to write a pretty sharp letter about it. A taxpayer has some rights. And I found that so interesting because so often when, when politicians speak about citizens and trying to court the votes, they say, well, you know, I'm just trying to, I'm just looking out for the taxpayers at the state of Texas, or I'm just looking out for the taxpayers in my districts. So they don't actually refer to them as I'm looking out as the citizens of my state or my district. Very often, in, in speeches and in advertisements and in interviews, they will say, I'm looking out for the taxpayer. It's typically a fiscal conversation though. They're not talking about human rights when they're talking about taxpayers. Well, right, they're usually talking it, about government largesse. But I think, the, I think it still matters because if politicians and people in government only see you as a way to fill the coffer, then that's all they're going to see you as. And I, and I think it matters how you refer to the citizens of the United States of America. And especially when I don't think the founders, because they fought a whole war over taxes, um, were doing it just so they could be called taxpayers by their new representative democracy. They were doing it so that they could be called citizens, full citizens. That's why they rebelled against the English because they felt like they were second right citizens or second class citizens. So I, I do think it matters um, how we refer to people. And I think Heinlein made that point and it was a throwaway comment, but it, it stuck with me because it's something 
that we see often today. There are no throwaway comments in this book. <laughs> Every letter was on purpose. Well, I think that's the scripture. What is what is uh, what do people value most? And at no point has anyone said, well, I'm a citizen. People say I'm a taxpayer. What I give is I give 17 percent of every paycheck to the government. What am I getting in return? And, and, And that is an attitude that I think is in stark contrast to the attitude of somebody who volunteers to become a citizen and to have that right put their skin in the game. But I do think uh, I found it curious. Uh, one of the things that came up in the book several times, Johnny Rico mentioned, you know, you're a citizen and you get to exercise that right once you're out of the service and nobody really ever gets out of the service. So that's a, if there's no, no throwaway line. Yeah, no, it, it, it's when, only a two year commitment in the book. You can get right, out after two years. He said that, but then he said, nobody ever really after two years are still in, they stick with it. They keep on. People don't leave after two years. But that's by choice. What, what's the right? That's by choice. But is it really a choice if it's is your I pressure to continue on or, oh, you know, you're stuck out at base and we can't get you back? You know, so yeah, I don't think is, there is actually a lot of pressure to stay, they, well, especially in boot camp, which I know is completely different. But um, are you talking they, your service? You're talking no, actual no, service. I'm talking about in the book. book. OK. In the book, during boot camp, at any point, if you wanted to leave, they'd be like, oh, yeah, absolutely, right this right. way. Right, but after yeah, but I, I know it's not. On, on the day you sign up, the guys, the first guy you <clears throat> meet does his best to talk you out of it. Right, and, and that's all true, all through boot camp. But once they're in, he mentions, and I'd have to go back through it, he mentions, after two years, most people stay in, and they just keep with it meaning that a lot of people don't end up as citizens who are no longer serving. Um, I don't know if you also recall, there is dozens of other jobs that people were getting aside from mobile infantry. And a lot of those jobs, I want to say it was in this. uh, Some were like R&D and such. Right, but but a lot of the jobs, well, yeah, sure. Um, But a lot of the jobs of were by people who had been injured right? A lot of the desk jobs were by people who were injured. Well, sure. And another thing in the book is they talk about anybody who wants to, to join and gain citizenship can. Nobody is precluded, which is very different from the current military. It is not easy to get into the military now, but, but in this book, if you want to join and you want to be a citizen, they have to let you go through the process. Well, you have to let you try. A lot of, I think he said in their original class of 2000, only about a quarter made it um, to what was it, Camp Spooky? Is that what the other one was? Camp, Camp Sergeant Spooky. So, I mean, uh, they, they'll let everyone try, but the vast majority will drum out and you not. You still got to earn it at the end of the day. Yeah. No, I mean, you, yeah, you got to pass. I mean, I'm not saying that, but it's, I think there's this, the way the society is structured is it's a military oligarchy or dictatorship that keeps the top brass at the top and doesn't actually allow that many people to become citizens if by I don't, failure I don't to pass boot camps or attrition in war. I, I'm pretty sure the, the form of government in this book is never discussed. 
Well, you know, it's not, but the structure of society. If the only is. people that can well, be citizens, if the only well, people I, that can be citizens and hold office are former military people, veterans, then yeah. then by default, it's going to be a highly militarized government. Whether or not it's an it's an actual military dictatorship, I it, it could not, be any but. number of forms of democracy. It could be a parliament. It could be a representative republic. It could be a straight democracy. But I think the point Jake's trying to make is that the people that are in this whatever form of government are all veterans, right? right. They, they they've all been through the system. I I, I concur. Um. So I don't know what else do you want to go over, Eric? Jack, well, I, Jack? I think that the, the point there is that there's almost zero room for any type of dissenting opinion to the overall structure because there can't be. They talk about that in the book, too. Yeah. I don't know if it's kind of a throwaway, like he didn't know how to explain it, but um, he asked the students, like, so why does this work? Why is this working for us? Why is this better than all the other forms of governance that have been tried? And the answer was, I don't know. It just is working. So I wish, you know, there was a different answer, but maybe that is the right answer. Well, I think one of the the, the questions or discussions that came up there was that <clears throat> if you're not willing to serve, if you even tried to go into boot camp and failed out, those people are unable to actually stage a revolution. Why? Am I, am I right about that? I think Dubois says, you know, if if you weren't willing to pick up a weapon and train and kill and do those things, you won't be able to actually stage a revolution. Yeah, that's a and great so, point. <clears throat> even if even if it tramples on rights or even if it is not an egalitarian society, uh, who's going to change it? Nobody, because nobody can. So, I, I mean, I look at this type of government, right, this type of society, I think it's going to be highly effective. It's going to achieve its goals. It's going to be very um, efficient. However, there's certain underpinnings of Western civilization that I think are of the highest importance and those being of individual liberty and individual freedom as messy and uh, inefficient as that is, the individual is the smallest minority and that must be protected. You know, it's also, I think it's important to note that this society in the book uh, came about after the fall of, I believe he calls it the democracies of the, the 20th century. Mm -hmm. And I'm reminded of this, uh, this old saw that hard men make easy times, easy times make soft men, soft men make hard times. It's, um, I don't know. You've got the fall of Rome. You've got this this cyclical thing that seems to go around and around. So and why not just keep the hard men in charge? That's 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 maybe Heinlein's philosophy for sure. So if you guys had the option to go through a ten year trial period of this sort of government, <laughs> would you even entertain the thought? A no. ten year trial period? No. It's big notes like, for everybody. Like on it an would, island, it would be sky. Well, we, it would we've be had such a trial a dramatic period. departure from what we're doing right now. I mean, we've had I, a trial I've, period, and it was called Sparta. I mean, we we actually have historical record. We have a historical event where this effectively was tried. You, you had the Homoioi, who were the the top ten thousand of Sparta, 
And among them, they had the Agoge, which was like the, the old men, the men who had survived all of that years of war. These guys were like 40, 50, 60 years old. They were the, the council. And then they elected two kings, all from their warrior class. And yet the they Paris also Church. had slaves of the, the same culture. I think that was a big detriment to their whole society. They also had a very small population. I mean, what, I don't think that's a fair comparison. Well, I, I mean, it's it's what we actually have in a historical record that's anything close to this. And this is, you know, this is fictionalized and most of it seems to to work internally. But if we're yeah, you're actually, reading it through rose tinted glasses, right? Because it's working in the book, of course. Yeah, it is. And so I'm looking at the only society that I can think of that works in this way. The only one, the only other society I can think of. <clears throat> and it's the one I think he references is the only way to fight communists and communist societies like the bugs is what he was referring. You know, you have a queen and Communal, everyone just yeah. does. Um, the only way to be effective at fighting them is to have that single minded effort. Um, and that's what the, that's what the Spartans had. So it's the, the only thing that, that I have in history right off the top of my head that compares and it's messy. They had the Pericoi and then they had, you know, that was like a hundred thousand Spartans who weren't full Spartan citizens. And they, they were basically the support. And then you had the Helots, the slaves. So um, it worked for a time and they were effective at what they needed to do. But, you know, that only lasted a few hundred years. Um A trial well, period we could do, but I'd, I'd rather it be like, I don't know, the, the state of Florida or something. I'll just pick one state and see what happens. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, and I do think, you know, Heinlein was writing, I don't know if he wrote this in the 50s or 60s, but, you know, he was coming out of World War II where during four to five years, the whole nation was on war footing. I mean, every, every, you know, the auto industry was geared towards building tanks and bombs and ships and, and, you know, the citizens had to ration and you had to get your ration cards and, you know, rubber and all that stuff was, everything was geared towards the war effort to defeat the fascists in Europe. And it worked, but it was also understood that it was a temporary state in the United States. It wasn't something that was going to be perpetuated, um, although we could go off about Eisenhower's military industrial complex speech, but that's not the, the goal here. But in that, you know, World War II ended and then we went back to non-war footing. Um, but during the time we were, it it did work. It it would allow us to create the greatest military power on the face of the earth. So, I mean, there are other examples, but nothing quite as stark as the Spartans. I, I think that is the most if, but if, if the larger, the, the Spartans were, were small, right? Relatively speaking, I mean, they were 200,000. Okay. Yeah. So, but if the greatest power in the world tried this, what happens? I mean, I, I, I don't know that, you know, China's doing pretty great things with totalitarianism. I don't know that what Heinlein's talking about. It's clearly not the same thing, but. There's some of that going on there. There's there's one party rule. Um, mm -hmm. There's when we want your opinion, we'll give it to you. There's a lot of that going on. And 
Yeah. Not that it's good or bad, but they're it's making effective. a lot of noise. It's very effective. Well, and I, I think it creates a contrast between modern democracy and authoritarianism. I, and you can discuss whether or not you like him as president, but that's something that Joe Biden said as he goes, we need to prove that democracy can keep up with authoritarianism. And that's a big part of his agenda is trying to make that real, whether or not he can or will or or he's even right. I don't know, but I, th I think that's the question that a lot of people are asking because they look at China like, well, if China needs to do infrastructure, they just do infrastructure. If China needs to build some ships, they just build them. If China needs to, you know, go make some naval bases on a spot of sand in the South China Sea, then they just do it. Like everything that we would like, you know, that takes us months and months and months or sometimes years to debate and appropriate and then debate again before even getting close to signing into law, China's just doing. Um, but it comes at the cost of the liberty of hundreds of millions of people. Well, sure. Um, yeah. I mean, to, to your point, I think, Jake, which country would you rather live in? Clearly this one. Here, yeah. Let me throw a wrench in here real quick. Um, the, the structure of the United States government outside of the 535 elected officials at the federal level, how many federal employees are there? Like in D.C.? Oh, There's just like, in D.C.? Well, let, let's say federal employee. Like if if we had elections tomorrow and those 535 federal employees all got turned over, the wheels still keep working, right? Mm -hmm. They still keep turning. Yeah. We, we have a transition of power, and that's possible only because not that it's the deep state, but we have a state structure that there's – I'd say 100,000 people who all know to do their job and their job makes the government actually run. In 2017, there were 2.1 million, and that does not include military personnel. Okay, so those people, and I'd say the military personnel as well, Joe Biden stepped, well, let's, let's actually go back. Donald Trump stepped into office in 2016. He had no prior experience in the federal government. He steps in, and there is a congressional structure of staffers and a military structure in the Pentagon that just tell him, here's how this works. Would that be correct? What's the alternative? alternative? Right. And so, so we do have a structure of not necessarily oligarchical, but a, a hierarchy of people that run the show. We vote. We elect officials, those officials go make decisions, but the show is being run by others. In certain fields, I mean, every department's gotta have some form of self-sufficiency. You can't have one guy micromanaging every aspect of the government. It's not gonna work, obviously. Right. There's never been a government like that. Yeah, no, I agree. I, and I, you're right, I mean, there's a, it's almost a, bureaucracy class eric that, that that's just kind of where i was states. going i i wanted yeah, to say massive bureaucracy at all levels of government one of the nicknames it gets is the deep state just because it operates at a deep level whether there's elected officials telling them what to do or not they they already mm -hmm. have their orders from 
30, 20, 10 years ago, and they operate those and carry those out. But it is a bureaucracy class. And that, it never goes away. It yeah. never shrinks. Departments don't go away. Yeah. Even when they're totally obsolete. Even when they're obsolete. <laughs> and, you know, when you have American companies that become obsolete, Kodak, Xerox, they whatever, they, they, they go away. Or Federal agencies do not go away. There's one other, one other question from Starship Troopers that I have, because it was one that came up in our text thread, and that was corporal punishment. Oh, yes. I'm glad as you a, brought that up. As an effective, and, and Jeff was like, did, did it change your mind? I, uh, I don't know that it changed my mind, because I, I'm reading the book, and I'm saying, that is very effective. I do agree with that. However, I don't think that... Um, it meets all my ethics as well. So I, I can't. Well, wait, your, your ethics as a parent, as a teacher? Well, probably more as a teacher and some as a parent. But, you know, it's like if my kid does something radically stupid, having them wait six weeks and then having a trial and then pushing that off again because there was a mistrial and then coming back and having a trial again and then having a sentencing hearing and then having the actual sentencing, the kid is eight months older by the time they get punished for drawing on the walls. I don't right? think that really captures the spirit of what they're going for. I think they're weighing the balances between two things, punitive measures and rehabilitative. Mm -hmm. And what do we put more focus towards? Off the bat, you want to say rehabilitative, right? You want to try and see if these uh, criminals can be place back into society and function. But I think that almost incentivizes crime because if they just know that they're going to try and make me a better person, I might actually go out of my way to commit a crime. Whereas if I knew if I stole some beer out of a gas station and got caught and I was going to get 10 lashes, I'm not going to steal the beer. I promise. I think, and, and this has happened to a few Americans in other countries where they've gotten lashes or canings after spray painting on a wall, something that's like a slap on the wrist here in the United States. Um, and it made, it was a big deal. Like we had to, parents were like, you have to go rescue them. And, and the United States is dealing with those countries and that country's like, no, he did it. Like you don't come here and spray paint on our walls. He's getting lashed. And I'm trying to think of the country. Singapore. Uh, Singapore. <laughs> uh, I like looked it up. Yeah. Everything that's illegal. It's like, if you're dealing drugs, it's execution. Don't deal drugs. Like, zero tolerance. And, yeah, uh, and consequently, their drug use and their drug trade, while illegal, is it's pretty low. Crazy. It's pretty, it's highly effective. You can say it's cruel, unusual, whatever. It's highly effective. But as in only, said in the it's book, only unusual if you make it unusual. You want it to be unusual. You don't want to have to be doing these things because you want people to follow the rules. Absolutely. I'm sure. So I'm just saying, if you go to Singapore, brush up on the rules before you go. You don't want to. And guess what? The guy got caned and he was fine. <laughs> Pretty sure they don't <laughs> I mean, ever get to. I mean, it's not Singapore's problem anymore. I'm not. He's yeah. gone. He ain't going back. I think, Eric, you're right. You make a good point. Is it's, it's, it's highly effective. However, it does not agree with my ethics at all. Um, 
in general, you know, and, and Dubois makes a lot of good, you know, makes another point where he says, discussing between when you raise a dog and what do you do? Do you scold it? Do you rub its nose in it? And then do you beat it or hit it to make sure that it doesn't pee in the house again? And that's what he was comparing to juvenile delinquents, which he called an oxymoron. Um, however, I would say spanking only is so effective on a kid. And I think there's a lot of diminishing returns on that eventually. Um, I remember when I was a kid and my mom spanked me. And then I remember the day that I started laughing when she spanked me because it no longer worked. And so then she got real creative with how to punish me. And it was shockingly effective. Um, you know, so I, I think getting shocked. Yeah. She actually just made me stick my finger in a socket. It was amazing. Um, but I, I think and my dad never hit me and, you know, I was always, I guess, scared that he would, but he never did. I didn't, he didn't need to do that to get me to listen. Um, and I think applying that at a greater scale, um, I think America, speaking of dogs, um, I think America has a very punitive legal system, although maybe not as strict as Singapore or the Philippines. Um, but I don't know if it's actually done that much good. Um, as many millions as we have in jail now, we keep arresting more and building more prisons. Well, I'll be right back you can escape justice in this country if you have money. So that's another problem with the whole system. There is another aspect of the system in the book, too, that was important. It's that when these punishments were doled out, it was public because that added another layer of punishment to it. That was almost more effective than the beatings themselves, allegedly. Speaking of public beatings, did you see England miss their last penalty kick today? <laughs> and I mean, yeah, if you have to go through that kind of public humiliation, I, I don't think you're going to do it a second time and you're going to do everything you can to avoid it the first time. And, you know, nobody talked about the punishment afterwards either. In the book. Yeah, what's done is done. It's done. We moved on. Well, and it's almost I think, as if it never happened. I, I think when we look at this too, I think perspective matters. You know, when I look at this in terms of when I was raising my children, I mean, I have a soft spot for my children, but um, let's change the perspective to somebody who's committed a crime against one of your children. Um, are you going to want that person to be dealt with in a rehabilitative fashion or a punitive fashion? I don't know. I'm just... I'm, I'm saying that distinction matters, I think. I remember we got into that discussion, Dad. We were talking about, I was, we were talking about the Prince, uh, the Machiavelli book. And uh, something that happens in the book is uh, this criminal did a crime. It was a horrible crime. I don't remember what he did. But um, the punishment that the ruler gave him was this man was cut in half and put in the town square for everyone to see him. And I asked my dad, I was like, do you think anybody deserved that? Was that a good punishment or was that a bad punishment? I think initially you said, no, that's overkill. It's ridiculous. You shouldn't cut people in half. I was like, okay, even if it was like a rapist, would you not think cutting this person in half would not be a good enough punishment for him? And I think that made you think about it a little more. I don't recall but yeah, I mean, it's all relative, you know, if there, you know, there's some countries where 
it's against the law to to chew gum and spit it on the ground. Um, cut them in half. Well, you just cut crime. everybody in half. Crime's gone. Well, you guys don't get it. If that worked, then we wouldn't have stopped doing like it's that stuff that we've been doing in American and Western society until like the 1900s, public executions and, you know, crucifixions and feeding criminals to lions in the, in the gladiators arena and burning at the stake. And it didn't stop crime. Like it, it just. Well, it's not a silver bullet. There's no one size fits all to your point earlier, Jake, you know, spankings became unaffected on you. Your mother had to get creative. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I raised multiple children. Some of my kids would fall apart at the notion of a spanking. Some of them just bowed up and didn't really seem to care. Um, kids are different. Citizens are different. We're, the, the the number of people in this country, there, there's no one thing that's going to work. Um, but I think, you know, I, I guess what's I just the best look at, way to, to govern 330, 350 million people. Yeah. And I agree with that. But I also think if I, you know, obviously when what you said, Jeff was, well, what if somebody did something to your child, which obviously fills me with seething rage, um, but that's why I don't want to be in charge of justice because I think justice like that isn't really justice at all. And I think that's why the United States justice system flawed though it may be was set up the way it was, was because they were trying to differentiate themselves from specifically England, but I would say the Western, um, the European nations that they were emigrating from as well. And I, I do think rehabilitation should be a goal of our justice system because as a christian the whole point is that none of us are good so we all need to be rehabilitated and i think if that's something we hold on to as a judeo-christian society then we need to incorporate that in, into how we deal with people that commit crimes that doesn't mean say it's okay and let it go but you know when when we're throwing people away or throwing people in jail for 10 years for drug possession. I think that's a bit much and it doesn't really solve the problem. Just makes it go away for 10 years. I think that's also sort of almost an entirely different problem that we have. How so? Well, not only sure rehabilitative versus punitive, but also what crimes should be crimes is another discussion. Oh, I agree. Yeah, that's a good point, Jack. Yeah, I, I think violent crimes and drug possession are two very different things. And this is where I would plug, if you end up on a jury, look up jury nullification. You know, one task of jurors is to, and lawyers from both sides do not want you talking about it. If you talk about jury nullification uh, during jury selection, they'll boot you. They'll send you out of there. Yeah, and it's basically that if you you see them trying to apply a law and you're like, well, that's not a good law you're within your right to say I'm not convicting on this because that's a dumb law. Um, and it's, you know, thankfully, if you're in a jury, you happen to be a citizen. And that's one way you get to exercise that right. It's hard to get on a jury if you bring up jury nullification. So you got to kind of keep it quiet if you really want to. But it's worth noting. Well, you know, one of the things they talk about in the book is nobody is born with morals. You you learn your morals through your upbringing and your experiences. 
And I would say the the other side to that is I don't know that anybody's born a criminal. Um, I think you react to your lot in life and who raised you and what happened to you and things happen there. Um, based on that, I mean, I, I would love to see rehabilitation at least tried. Um, but there's there's obviously and absolutely times where it just is tried and does not work. You know, there's a, a great show on HBO. It's called The Night Of. I don't know if anyone's seen it. Yeah, with with uh, Ahmed Riz. Yeah, yeah, he yeah. does fantastic in that. And that's kind of an interesting thing. Like prison, the system, you know, he's put in jail in preparation for his trial. By the time he's out and by the time he's uh, acquit, acquitted of the, the crime, he's become a criminal while in prison because that's what prison does. It creates, it's like a training ground for criminals. It's like a shot collar. Anyone yeah. seen shot collar? Mm -mm. It's an excellent movie. Yeah. Great movie. John Bernthal, Jamie Lannister. It's good stuff. So if we just use lashings, that would solve everything. Yeah. It'd it'd solve it'd solve anything. It would solve some things. Yeah. It wouldn't solve everything. Nothing's going to solve everything. There's, there's, there, there, there's no silver bullet to this deal. I don't think it would solve everything. Obviously, it's ridiculous, but I think it would uh, get rid of a lot of problems. I think it'd be more effective. I think there'd be less crime. I really do. A lot less crime. I mean, look what's going on right now in California. You can legally shoplift less than $950 worth of merchandise. How's that going? They're shutting down Walgreens. There's, I mean, at 6 p.m. Yeah, targets in San Francisco are shutting down at 6 p.m. because they can't deal with the crime. After it's not safe. Dark. It's not for for the 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 average populace for the the taxpayers, Jake. It's not good for the taxpayers. It's it's not good for anybody. I don't think it's good for the the city. But you know, you've got California is, I think. An example, it's a microcosm of this whole thing gone completely awry. You've got homeless people literally living on the street right outside of a Walgreens. And they just walk inside and take whatever they want. And there's no repercussions. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I think there are some instances, especially California, where live and let live doesn't work, especially as a society. However, why are people committing crimes? It's usually not because they're inherently evil. It's usually because they're hungry or need to pay the bills or, or they have mental something. illness or they're addicted to drugs. Sure. But why are they addicted to drugs? Like there's all these other systemic issues for why people commit crimes and lashings while might be effective in tamping down on some crimes. It's not actually solving the It's not solving the cause of what people are doing to commit crimes. That would certainly solve white collar crime though. Because those guys have. Well, they have oh, weak yeah. behinds. No, yeah, I yeah. understand. But. <laughs> That's one of my favorite uh, onion posts. Uh, wealthy teen nearly experiences consequence. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so. Uh, Eric or Jack, what's, what's, what's the best way to wrap this up? The best way to wrap this up. Uh, I don't know. I've never wrapped up a podcast before. 
Welcome. Well, we talked about Starship <laughs> Troopers and we talked about Jack being in the Navy. Would you say, Jack, the Navy is closer to American democracy or closer to Starship Troopers society? Easily Starship Troopers. The military is a meritocracy. And who votes in the military on military things? Not us. I mean, <laughs> are you talking about like on a day-to-day basis? Yeah. There's no voting, right? Yeah. Like who? Absolutely is not. Is like movie night and you guys get to pick or? You know, it, it's really I think interesting. I the movies personally. <laughs> it's uh, interesting you would say that, Jack, because I, uh, I was with Jason the other night and his son is also in the Navy. And his son was telling him that one of his complaints about the Navy it is it is not a meritocracy. He viewed it as you can move ahead simply as a function of the amount of time that you've been there. Do, do you disagree with that notion? I mean, sure you can. But if you work harder, you will rise faster. That's very interesting, because when we did our series on the Russo-Japanese War, Eric, one of the big contrasts between the Russian and and Japanese Navy was that the Japanese Navy was very much a meritocracy. meritocracy or skills based or, you know, it, like it you was, had to prove that you could move on as an officer. Being in the Japanese military at that time was the way that somebody learned to read and write and and picked up skills mm-hmm. that would allow them to actually have a better lot in life over wherever they came from in Japan, whereas Russia was. It was very much literally time served at sea was how you advanced. So as long as you were in the Navy a long time, you didn't really have to prove yourself. So it's just interesting you bring that up, Jeff and, and Jack, because we saw Japan that exact same contrast in Russia all over the place. Yeah. Spoiler alert. Japan won. But Handily. that is interesting. So crazy how nature do that. So anyways, uh, yeah, we, uh, um, I think we'll wrap it up there. This was awesome to talk to Jack about his some of his experience in the Navy. We may have to follow up more later with uh, with that because I'm sure I'll, we'll have more questions. And uh, Starship Troopers, it's on sale now. Has been for fifty years. Sixty years, yeah. Sixty years. You know so. what? It's it, it's just it, it's such a it, it it comes out of left field. I mean, like I said, it, there, there's no reason if you see this book in the bookstore and you don't know anything about it. You're going to walk right past it unless you're a deep science fiction nerd or you're just you're on a road trip and you need a book. But um, if anybody out there listening to this is interested in a really interesting discussion in moral philosophy, it, it's a good read. It's a gripping mm-hmm. read. Uh, I think it's definitely it's a, more a really than science. It's a really important book, too. I think, you know, obviously a lot of what they talk about is reviled in today's culture, especially in America. And if an author, you know, wrote it today and dropped it today, he would be canceled. But since this author is dead and the book is already well known, it's allowed to exist. And if you want some alternative ideas and a different perspective and a new mindset, I'd say give it a try. It's definitely worth it. I agree. I think good good literature and any it's good science fiction in particular makes you not just look at like, oh, fancy ships and guns, but like discuss the nature of society because it allows you to do that in a fictional situation Yeah, science fiction is almost used as a shield for uh controversial yeah. ideas to be talked about exactly and I, I absolutely agree i think it's a great way to to analyze why we do what we do as a society and i think Starship at the Cooper's top of uh, eric's copy it says the controversial military classic yeah, right it does yep 
the controversial military classic. And and on top of that, you know, Jake talked about the nature of society and how things work. That's one of the questions talked about, and, but also human nature. Um, because people have not changed in 10,000 years. We operate in the same way that we did six, eight, 10,000 years ago. Um, human nature doesn't change. And uh, I think that's a question that a lot of science fiction, good science fiction goes after and, and how we structure our societies to maximize mm -hmm. the benefit of human nature. So versus all the, the, uh, the detractions of human nature. So, yeah, I think that's yeah. about it. And, and if you got a commune of 20 hippies, everybody love each other, probably works really well. But in this book, they're dealing with a one world government. Yeah. And um, I don't well, know. Well, it'll work really well. It's going to work. And then, you know, you'll get a Bernie who doesn't do any work. If a one world what government then? isn't the ultimate goal, I don't know what is. Hey, that's all. That's all we've been hoping for. I, I think it's once we get introduced to the Federation of Planets, then we'll have no choice but to go to one world government. Until then, we've got plenty of borders. Well, that's why they won't let us in yet. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. On. There you go. We're just <laughs> they're looking at us. ourselves. It's just like once they figure it out, and then we'll let them in. Good deal. Well, listen, hey, uh, this was a good discussion. Yeah. I enjoyed all the different points of view. Uh, we appreciate Jack being on the show again. Uh, you're Thank getting you, to be a bit of a regular at this point, and uh, we appreciate your time. Uh, I know that it is almost 2 a.m. where you are, so and you probably have to work tomorrow. So thanks again for joining us. Um, this is Jeff from Dad Body History with Eric and Jake. We'd ask everybody to like, subscribe, and comment, and uh, tell everybody you know about this show because they need it. Have a good and night. And Jack, if you need a sticker or a magnet to put on the side of the ship, we can get those for you. Send it over. I'll do my best. Stick it right there next the to the anchor. The whole fleet. Everybody. <laughs> Just the nose of that sub. Bam. Yep. <laughs> awesome. Right. Thanks, guys. Have a good night.